Well, I'm so excited to be back with you and, and to get to be a part of this conversation. And, and that's what this really is. You know, so many times we don't do things that are worth doing because we're afraid we're not going to do it right. Do you find that in your own life? That we don't do things, that we don't have conversations, that we don't, uh, that we don't try because we aren't completely sure that we're going to do it right. But we know that none of us are perfect that none of our efforts are going to be perfect, and that perfection is the enemy of action. And if the enemy can keep us on the loop of constantly being afraid and constantly refining and constantly, you know, just, well, I'm just getting this right, and then I'm going to, then he can keep us in inaction, and he can keep our hands and our feet from reaching out and saying and doing what is needed to see our culture and to see our community healed. So tonight... Last Wednesday night, this month, we have not had perfect conversations. We have had conversations. And in my opinion, it is much better to start having conversations than to wait until never when we have the exact perfect thing to say. So tonight, we're going to continue this series of imperfect conversations about our culture and about culture in general. Um, you know, it's, it's very strange how God created um, humans, right? I mean, he created us, and, and, um, and the first group of humans, they lived for hundreds and hundreds of years, according to the Bible. I mean, hundreds and hundreds of years. But today, we don't live very long, do we? We live maybe... 60, 70, 80 years. Somebody who's in their 90s, oh man, you've lived a great life, which is code for we're not going to cry at your funeral, you know? If you're in your 100s, it's like, what is going on? I want your secret. My grandfather lived until he was almost 102. And honest to goodness, the only reason I truly believe that he died is because he just laid down and decided to. I mean, it was, it was the most amazing thing. He was just a cowboy, and he was like, you know what? I think we're done. Let's go to the next rodeo, because he was just, it was just over. But because we don't live very long, our sense of history is incredibly limited. And the problems that we face today seem to be the biggest ones that earth has ever faced. The problems that we faced in the last 50 years seem to be unique, and nothing has ever been as good. You know, you hear everybody talk about the simpler times, and I, I used to just get offended by that because I was like, don't you know? And then I thought about it. Well, when you're 40 and you're talking about the simpler times that were 30 years ago, you were 10, and you're right. Those were simpler times for you because you were 10, it's just human nature, right? We don't have a sense of history. And so even when we have a conversation about culture, it's important that we put it into two contexts. And the first context is a historical context. We have to understand that we've been on this planet a while. People argue about how long. I don't really care. It's been a while. I've seen, I've seen in Taiwan bowls, jade bowls that are 5,000 years old. Some of the most beautiful, exquisite pieces of art that you've ever seen in your life. We've been here a while. 
Humanity has confronted some difficult, some dark, some horrible things. We have to put our lives into a historical context, our, our, our culture into a historical context, our crisis into a historical context, but we also have to put it into a Jesus context. Because we can't see everything. Our perception is so limited to ourselves, right? And so Jesus comes in and he shines a light and he allows us to see truth that we could never see. And we get to see truth the way it really is. So we have to think about those contexts. And, and so those are the contexts that I want to bring to today. Like I said, this is the conversa- a conversation. It's not meant to be the conversation. If God gave us 66 books, then you're probably going to need more than one sermon from me. (laughs) But the Bible is a book of many, many, many small stories, just like history is, right? Within the context of one big, large story. We are all small stories within the context of our community. And the Bible is this grouping of many, many small stories that we love and that we love to talk about within one big story. And you can characterize that one big story in a lot of ways. You can characterize it as God's love story to us. I've heard that. I think that's beautiful. You can characterize it as God um, getting all the glory and being the champion as the ultimate conflict between the devil and God. You, You can see it in many different ways, but tonight the way that I'd like us to maybe think about it is the way that it's seen in 2 Corinthians 5.14. So I'm just going to read a couple verses. 2 Corinthians 5.14. Since we believe that Christ died for all, We also believe that we have all died to our old life. He died for everyone so that those who receive his new life will no longer live for themselves. Instead, they will live for Christ who died and was raised for them. So we have stopped evaluating others from a human point of view. At one time, we thought of Christ merely from a human point of view. How differently we know him now. That means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. And all of this is a gift from God who brought us back to himself through Christ. And God has given us, say us, the task of reconciling people to him. For God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. So we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead. Come back to God. For God made Christ who never sinned to be the offering for our sins so that we could be made right with God through Christ. Let's pray. God, I just thank you so much for what you have to say tonight. God, I pray that we wouldn't just come with words of man's wisdom, but we would come with something that touches the spirit of every person in this place. God, we know that your word is alive, that it's a two-edged sword, and that it cuts through all of the stuff so that we can see truth. And Lord, we pray that your word would cut into our hearts and help us to see truth like never before. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, the story that we see there is a story of reconciliation. It's a story of reconciliation, but it's twofold. It's a story of reconciliation between God and man, and it's also a story of reconciliation between man and man. Because God and man were separated in the Garden of Eden through the sin of man. 
We chose to rebel, and so we were separated from God. But the consequence of the fall was also that we were divided from each other. We were divided from each other. Instantly, there was division, and this division shows itself again in the next story in the Bible, the story of Cain and Abel. So so Adam and Eve, they fall in the garden. They're separated from God. God says as part of the curse that there's going to be this separation between Eve and Adam in their desires, and then they have kids, and lo and behold, their kids are messed up too. Because their um, dysfunction is passed down in genetic form to these kids. And so they have Cain and Abel, two brothers. And Cain and Abel get into this fight where it becomes very clear that Cain and Abel are different. And Cain cannot stand the fact that Abel is different from him and he kills Abel. That's one way of looking at the story, right? He can't stand Abel. He kills Abel. He kills what was different. He kills what threatens his identity. And then we see that God creates intentionally this division between us and them. Right? So he goes in and he says, Abraham, you're going to be my guy. Okay? We're going to create a people together. And from now on, the world's going to be divided between Jews and non-Jews. I'm going to have a people. The rest of the people aren't going to be my people. So that means it's going to be us and them. And he creates a law that applies to his people. And he creates all these systems of communication that apply to his people. And yet in the midst of creating this separation, he still leaves room because he instructs his people. He says, whatever you do, don't treat badly the foreigner. Don't treat badly the stranger. Don't treat badly the people who live in your midst who are not you. So even in the midst of this God-created otherizing, he shows his heart for the whole world. Malachi 3.5, he says, at that time I will put you on trial. He's talking to Israel. I'm eager to witness against all sorcerers, adulterers, and liars. I will speak against those who cheat employees of their wages, who oppress widows and orphans, or who deprive the foreigners living among you of justice. This was part of why God judged Israel. is because they violated his law. And they said, you know what? Because you've chosen us, we are superior, and we have a right to treat people who are not us badly. So, then we get to the new covenant. Aren't you glad we're under the new covenant? I'm kind of excited about that. I love, every time I start talking about Jesus and the new covenant, I just get happy on the inside. So, then we come to the new covenant, where Jesus dies for all. And there's no longer, and this is good for us because most of us fit into the the non-Jew category, okay? So this is good for us. There's no longer Jew and non-Jew. It's just all of us. It's just all of us. It's just all of us. Christ died for all. He provides a way of reconciliation between himself and us, right? But he also provides a way of reconciliation between us, 
between me and you, between all of the divisions and all of the differences. And he sets as a baseline this concept that we are fundamentally the same and that our differences are to be celebrated. But that we are fundamentally the same because we are fundamentally the same in this way. I've heard people say, oh, well, people are just fundamentally all good. That's actually not what the Bible says. We are fundamentally all bad, according to the Bible. (laughs) That's what we all have in common. The Bible says, all we like sheep have gone astray, each to his own way. All we like sheep have gone astray. So we are all fallen. We are all fundamentally the same. But even within this new covenant, we maintain this desire to otherize, to create another. Do you feel that in your own life? Like when you come into a confrontation? I won't skip too far ahead. 1 Corinthians 3.3 tells us this. he's talking, Paul's talking to the Corinthians, and he says this. He says, you are still worldly. Just so you know, anything that Paul says that starts with that is not going to get nicer. You are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere humans? What, after all, is Apollos, and what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned each to his task. For we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. See, our tendency to want to divide is a symptom of our fallen nature. And our tendency and desire to unite is evidence of God's spirit. So our tendency to want to divide is a symptom of our fallen nature, but our desire, that thing that compels us to want to unite, is evidence of God's spirit. And we see this tendency to otherize throughout history. And I'm using this word because it's just the best word I've ever found for it, but it means to create an other who is not me and to set up my identity as opposed to that other. We do this e- even on our families, right? Like you're the good sister or you're the bad sister or you know, I'm the selfish one or she's the unselfish one and we create this identity for ourselves that depends on somebody else being different than us. We otherize we can see this all throughout history. And this is what it does, is it leads to the belief that we are fundamentally different with some similarities rather than fundamentally the same with some differences. That we're fundamentally different with some similarities, we're not fundamentally the same with some differences. And this is the problem with that, is that if you are fundamentally different from someone, then one of you is better than the other. It's just the way it is. If you are fundamentally different from someone, one of you is better than the other. And you have to maintain your position, okay? Just stay with me. You have to maintain your position through storytelling that then colors all of your experiences and your opinions. Because, see, we understand as humans life through story. That's why the Bible's written as a story. It's because... 
you understand. I mean, kids understand this, right? They don't just tell you a lie. They tell you a story. You know what I mean? I mean, have you ever been around somebody who's like a really good liar? Like, they never just like say, oh, no, I didn't. They're like, no, I was at the store with Max, and he had a blue shirt on, and then we went to the, and so there's no way I could have done it. He creates this whole story. Why? Because our minds are wired to understand life through story. And so when we otherize, I have to create story about you that when I have an experience with you, then my experience confirms my story and my story reinforces that you're just different. And, you know, if we have any similarities, it's just an accident. And we see this all throughout history, micro and macro level, even within our own families. You know, the in-laws, they're just different. You just kind of have to put them over to the side. By the way, my in-laws are perfect and wonderful. I have to say that every time. They really are. They're great. They're fantastic. If you want to learn how to be the best mother-in-law in in the world, talk to my mother-in-law. She's the greatest. But some of you have issues with your (laughs) mother-in-laws. I know, because you come and talk to me. But, (laughs) But we do that within our own families. We do it within our work. You know? I remember doing this when I was in college and on a really silly level. I had never been a clean person. You can ask my husband. I'm the worst housekeeper you've ever seen. I mean, I'm serious. I can walk into a room and just tiptoe across it, and it gets messier. I just, I'm a horrible housekeeper. I'm terrible. But when I was in college, I lived with a girl who was so much worse of a housekeeper than I ever will be that she made me look clean. And do you know I was clean that semester because I was the clean roommate? I had set up my identity as opposed to her. I was superior to her, right? So I had to live out my identity and emphasize how not like me she really was. And we do that. We do it in our, in our lives with, on the micro level and on the macro level. But, but this, is, this is the issue, And this is where it comes into the macro level and the cultural issue is it's complicated when you add in power. It's complicated when you add in a power dynamic. It's one thing for me or you to create an other within our family or within our workplace or within a roommate situation. And it's something completely different when I have power and I'm able to create a system that's based on my beliefs. And that's what happens when we otherize as a society. That's what happens all through history. All through history. You can go through all of history. In fact, that's what was literally happening when Jesus came to earth with the Romans. They had created an other, which was anything that was not Roman, okay? It was like Roman and then not Roman, right? You know, and, and they were otherizing, but they had the power, so they were creating systems of rules and laws that backed up their stories and their prejudice and didn't just back them up, but were based on them. Can you imagine if you went in and you were making laws based on your preconceived ideas of people? I mean, we do it as parents, and it's a good thing, right, because we know our kids, And we know the stuff that they will do. And so we create laws and rules to, like, fence them in. But when it's one group in a society 
having a prejudice against another group, and, and this group has power. And then they create a system that marginalizes and oppresses this other group completely based on their own preconceived ideas and their own stories and their stories that are now backed up by their experiences because they filtered it all through the lens. That's destructive. And it's happened over and over and over again. And we are fools if we think that that is not what happened in our country. But it's hard to talk about. In fact, these times of social otherizing are so deep in our collective psyche that usually we have to have a lot of time and space before we can start talking about them. Um, the Holocaust, horrible, right? Everybody's read about the Holocaust. I mean, six million Jews, millions of other people um, exterminated within a very short period of time, um, about four years. It was the first time that we had um, uh, media that was readily available, and so that's one of the reasons why it's so imprinted on our psyche. But, but this is what's crazy about it. People didn't really start making movies about the Holocaust till the 1980s. Did you know that? Yeah. Holocaust happened in the 40s. It was over by 1945. But society, especially in Germany, was not able to start dealing with it until the 1980s. Why? Because sometimes you have to have a little bit of space, and sometimes you have to have a new generation who can have a little bit of distance before you can look back and start having honest conversations about the culture and the society that you've created. Because the Holocaust was not a blip on the radar of Europe. The Holocaust was a culmination of hundreds hundreds of years of oppression and murder and, and, and horrible things and otherizing of the Jewish community. That's what it was. It wasn't like all of a sudden people just woke up and went, this is a good idea. For hundreds of years, there had been an otherizing that had created this system that suddenly made the worst of the worst of the worst of things okay. It's important that we confront even those things that are difficult within our own society. So what is the Jesus response? That's the historical context. You know, it just happens over and over and over again. If any of you were Battlestar Galactica fans, I would make a joke right here. Those of you who are Battlestar Galactic fans, you know what joke I'm talking about, and you can laugh later. But it just happens over, and I'm a nerd. Did you not know this? Gosh. But things just repeat, right? A group gets power. They otherize another group based on superficial differences. And then they create a society and a system that's based on those differences. They marginalize. They distance. There's atrocities that happen. Then there's an equalization, and then suddenly you have to deal with it. Oh, my goodness, how do we deal with it? Good news, we have the Bible. And what's so great is that Jesus knew that this had happened for thousands of years and that it would happen for thousands of years. And so what he did is he came down into a society where he was an impressed group, but he also was part of a group that was very good at oppressing. And then he told us how to deal with otherizing 
And he told it through story. And he told it through two stories in particular. He talked about the Samaritans. Now, we know the Samaritans, and we talk about the Samaritans, that the Jews hated the Samaritans, and, you know, the Samaritans weren't really big fans of them. But what you have to understand is that historically, the Jews had heavily oppressed and marginalized the Samaritans, but they were somewhat equalized under Roman law. Okay? So historically, very oppressed, now equalized under Roman law, but still hated each other. Hated, hated, hated each other, mostly on the Jewish side. The Jewish side felt like they were so unclean and they, they just were awful. They wouldn't even walk through their towns. Now, I'm just going to go ahead and say, if you didn't have a car, right, like you didn't have a car, and you had to walk miles out of your way to avoid people, that's a lot of hate. Like, that's a large amount of inconvenience and rocks and hill climbing to avoid people just because you don't like their theology, just because your grandma and your grandpa told you that they were horrible, just because you know, well, that story and that one time and that one person, and you know, he said this and da 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 That's a whole lot of hate for us to avoid. But don't we do that in our own lives? Don't we allow sometimes our prejudices to keep us from ever entering into rooms, into circles, into communities where there are people who are different from us that maybe our parents taught us to fear or to worry about or to be afraid of? Aren't we in many ways kind of like those Jews? But Jesus, but Jesus, but Jesus, he was so amazing. He, he made a point all through the Bible to walk through Samaria. Can you imagine what his disciples were thinking? Jesus, I, I get it, bro. Straightest point between two lines, you know, the whole deal. You're tired. You know, people won't give you water to wash your feet when we go to houses. Look, we will get you some water. We are not supposed to walk through Samaria. Jesus didn't care. He went where he wasn't supposed to go. He engaged with people that people said he wasn't supposed to engage with. He went out of his way. And then there's these two beautiful stories. And, and the first one is the story of the Good Samaritan. And, and most of us know this story where Jesus is asked by this kind of snooty guy, who is my neighbor, right? Love your neighbor as yourself. And he says, who is my neighbor? And Jesus tells this story that sounds like it's just going to be one of those typical morality tales. And there's a guy who gets beat up on the road. And, you know, because Samaritans were, like, not very good people, there's probably some people in the crowd who were like, it was probably a Samaritan, you know. And so he, he gets beat up on the road, and he's left for, for dead. And, and then there's the two best people in Jewish society, right? A Levite and a priest walk by, and they don't help him. And so now we're coming up to the third person. And I'm just going to guess rhetorically that everybody knows the third person's going to be the hero even back then. Maybe that was the way it was. That's the way I would have thought. And who is it? It's the Samaritan? Wait a second. That's not the way that the story's supposed to go. Don't you know that Samaritan is code for dangerous? Don't you know that Samaritan is code for bad? Don't you know that Samaritan is code for different? When we tell these stories, we use the word Samaritan for a reason, and it's supposed to convey some stuff to the audience, and you just changed it up. See, Jesus was talking to the Jews. He was talking to the people who 
had been the oppressors. He had talked to the people who were marginalizing, and he didn't confront them on an individual basis. He confronted their entire system of thought. But then he engages the Samaritan. And so he goes and he sits at a well, and he begins talking to a Samaritan woman in the middle of the day. Not supposed to be talking to a woman first. We won't have to talk about that tonight. Not supposed to be talking to a woman. Certainly not supposed to be talking to a Samaritan. And I, I love, I love what he says. If you go to John 4, verse 9, he, he's, he's turned to the Samaritan woman and he says, the woman looks at him and is surprised that she's talking to him and, and says, the woman was surprised, for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. She said to Jesus, you are a Jew, I am a Samaritan woman, why are you asking me for a drink? In other words, all of my experience, all of the things that I know about this situation say that this should not be happening. Maybe she was even offended about it. Sometimes we think that she was kind of like, why are you asking me for a drink? Like, I'm so glad you're talking to me. She might have been like, who are you? Like, do you have sunstroke? Like, is there something wrong? Like, are you one of those Jews that lived like in the Hellenic countries and you don't know about this? Let me go ahead and clue you in. My people don't like your people. Your people really don't like my people. In fact, your people used to be really mean to my people and it's only the Romans that keep you from being mean. So why don't you go and go to another well and just leave me alone? But Jesus doesn't answer her prejudice, and he doesn't answer for his own. He just looks right at her heart. And he says, I see you. I hear you. I understand you. I get you. And there's a bigger picture that I want you to look at. See, when Jesus is dealing with otherizing, whether you've been otherized in your family, whether you've been otherized in your community, whether you've been otherized in society, whether you've been otherized at work, when he talks to you, it's about you. When he talks to the group, it's about the group. But when he talks to you, when he talks to me, it's about me. And it's about my response. And what's so great is that when I allow Jesus to talk to me and to talk to my heart, because what happened? I mean, he goes through and, and she just basically says, my real issue isn't that I'm a Samaritan. My real issue is a lot bigger than that. My real issue is bigger. My real issue isn't that your people and my people and all this. No, my real issue is much much bigger. I'm hurting way deeper than that. And he speaks right to her pain, and he speaks right to her hurt, and he speaks right to her heart. And what does it result in? It doesn't result in her healing. It results in a community's healing. Because when as individuals, God heals our heart, we have an opportunity to invite other people to the table. When we choose to let God's truth penetrate our experience and, 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 and our, our, our own shell that it, that's been built up over a lot of time. And we say, you know what, God, you're right. I've got even bigger issues than this. And I want you to, then we bring healing to an entire community. 
Jesus' approach is always so offensive. Isn't it? I mean, really. If you don't read your Bible and get offended, I don't know if you're reading the right translation. You should come talk to me. Because I do. But God, it shouldn't be that easy. I mean, I, I'm the victim here. I'm the one that I should get. Ah. Okay. So, he engages the oppressed by engaging with the individual. He engages the oppressor by engaging with the group. In both cases, he confronts the way that they think. So, what is the recipe? What is the way that Jesus asks us to deal with otherizing? And there's three things. First, he asks us to confront our preconceptions. To confront our preconceptions. We all have preconceptions. I'm just going to go ahead and say something that I feel it's not in the Bible. It's kind of like when Paul says, um, you know, I didn't get this from God, but I believe I have the spirit of God, you know, or whatever. Um, it, it's not in the Bible. It's, it's, just, it's just me. I don't think there's such a thing as being colorblind, as being blind to disability, being blind to, to socioeconomic difference. You, you can't be blind to our differences. But what you can do is you can be aware of your own prejudices, right? I can be aware of my own prejudices. So I have to confront my preconceptions and I have to confront my prejudices. And if I say I don't have them, then I'm lying because I'm a human and I'm just here. Right? So I have some. So I have to confront them. I have to confront them with the word of God. I have to confront them when they raise their ugly head. I have to confront them when I see them in my children. I have to confront them when I see them in my society. I have to confront them when I look at them in my history. I have to confront my preconceptions. But then I have to examine my stories. I have to examine my stories. What stories are you telling yourself about yourself and others? What code words do you use? What do those code words mean? How does the story change if you change the person's race in the story? If you change whether the person was old or young, if you change their last name or where they were born, if you change their ethnicity or their country of origin, how does the story change for you? See, when we examine our stories, it reveals our preconceptions, and then we're able to confront them. So we listen to ourselves we listen to the way that we recount stories. We listen to the stories we tell about different areas or we tell about different parts of the world. We listen to our stories. We examine our stories. But then we submit our experiences. We submit our experiences. See, your, your experiences, you will off, we will often try to use our experiences as a judge of reality. But instead, we should use God's word as a judge of our experiences. Oftentimes we try to use, I, I will say it again, thank you, Philip. <laughs> Very obedient, submissive wife here. But anyway, um, <laughs> we often use our um, experiences as a way of judging reality. Well, this happened to me, so this must be true. Well, this happened to me, so this justifies this. Well, he said this to me, so he must be like Whatever. But instead, God invites us to use his word as a judge on 
our experiences, as the lens through which we see the world, as the way in which we interpret data. Because facts are neutral. It's us who puts the spin on them. And if we use God's word and his desire for us to love, you know, he says for us to love each other. And the Bible says that love is patient and kind, doesn't envy, it doesn't boast. It believes the best. It hopes all things and endures all things. Love never fails, all of these different things. If we use God's word as a way of judging our experiences instead of allowing our experiences to decide the way that our life goes, then we're in submission. We're in submission. And you know what? Our submission will require us to give up some things. It will. It'll require us to give up some things. But what we have to understand is that there is a bigger picture. We, we, we see this happen in Acts 10. And with this, I'm going to close. You can come and play the piano if you want to. Um, Acts 10. Peter is a Jew. Like, he's a for real Jew. Like, he's, like, serious about it, you know. Um, and he uh, does not eat unclean things. There's, like, a lot of rules in the law, about eating unclean things, talking to unclean people, touching unclean things. There's just a lot of clean and unclean. It's, it's part of that old covenant division, okay? Clean, unclean, Jew, non-Jew, all of that. And so Peter is a very good Jew, and he, um, he has this dream where, where Jesus reveals to him that there's no longer clean and unclean. And right about the time that this dream happens, Jesus gives him an opportunity to accept this new way of thinking or not to. And he sends somebody from a a non-Jew's household, a Roman centurion's household, to come and see him, Cornelius. And so Peter goes with them, and he goes into Cornelius' house. And Peter told him, you know it's against our laws for a Jewish man to enter a Gentile home like this or to associate with you. But God has shown me that I should no longer think of anyone as pure or unclean. So I came without objection as soon as I was sent for. Now tell me why you sent me. So we change our thinking. We allow God to change our preconceptions, to change our stories. We submit our experiences to him. We do that through worship and prayer and conversation. Worship and prayer and conversation, because that's what happened with Peter. He was worshiping, he was praying, and he had this conversation with Jesus. But you know what? We need to have conversations with each other, too. Because the Bible says that the Spirit of God, when we accept Jesus, we have the Spirit of God. We need, we need to have that conversation allow that iron to sharpen iron. That's why we started with conversation. But this is what's so neat. This is what I love with all of my heart. After he has this incredible experience, he shows up at Cornelius's house. He shows up. Now, I'm Peter, right? And Jesus told me upon this rock, I'm going to build my church, right? Jesus told me that I was one of his three favorite people. I mean, he showed me because, like, I, I got to see the transfiguration. I got to see all of Jesus' miracles. You know, I was there at this, that, and the other. I've seen, you know, all, all kinds of people healed. Just all, it's, it's been great. Cloven tongues of fire on my head, speaking in tongues. I mean, come on. I'm Peter. Peter could have walked into that house and said, I know why I'm here. Obviously. 
you all need me. He could have walked into the house and said, well, you sent for me. Let me tell you what I can do for you. He could have walked in the house and said, well, you know, Jesus said that there's no clean or unclean, but obviously I'm still vastly superior to you, so let me just go ahead and tell you the way that things are going to be. But instead he does this. He says, now tell me why you sent for me. See, when our thinking's really changed, instead of statements, we start asking questions. Instead of trying to prove our point, we start inquiring. Why did you send me? How does this feel to you? What do you think the solution is? How can I get on board? Hey, tell me a little bit more about your experiences. We no longer feel threatened by any of that because our identity isn't in the other person being different than us. See, it leads to questions. And then it leads to actions. Because Peter baptized all the people who were there. Peter baptized them. And they became one. It was an amazing thing that happened. But it started. It started with Peter allowing his preconceptions to be challenged. It started with him accepting what Jesus had been showing him for three years that there's no longer us and them. There's just us. And we are all fundamentally the same. And we can celebrate our differences. See, what that's called is reconciliation. And that's the ministry we've been called to. Will you stand with me? Thanks for listening today. We hope you were encouraged by the Word of God. If you'd like more information on North Point Community Church, you can find us online at www.northpoint.ccpeople.com.